Okay, Matthew 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said then to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. <coughs> our Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So we pray this morning that by the power of your Spirit, that light would shine. And that we would see clearly uh, the Lord Jesus, that we would see clearly his salvation and the gospel that he holds out. And we would see clearly uh, what it means to follow him. Bless us, we pray, therefore, Father, as we sit at the feet of our Lord and Saviour. We ask in his name. Amen. What would happen if your prayers from the last 24 hours... 48 hours were answered. If every prayer you've asked, every request you've brought to God over the last day or two was granted. And by granted, I mean if God said yes. Okay, imagine if God said yes, children, to everything you've prayed. What would happen? And if you haven't prayed over the last two or three days, just think to yourself, well, if I could ask for anything, what would I ask for? Children, you've probably seen the movie Aladdin or, or read the story Aladdin, and you know the genie the genie who pops out of the bottle. Okay, and Aladdin is allowed three weeks. He's allowed to ask anything he wants. Well, just imagine God came to you and said, anything you like. What would you ask for? How would the world change? How would the universe change? Would, would people around you notice that your prayers had been answered? Uh, ultimately, our prayers reflect our, our deepest desires. Our prayers show what matters most to us, what our greatest concerns are. Now, sometimes 
circumstances flood in on us and we're in some sort of crisis and the pressure's on. And so our prayers just spontaneously come out of us. You know, you're in the aeroplane, it's plunging towards uh, the sea. Lord, catch the plane, rescue us, that kind of thing. Uh, medical emergencies swamp us. And understandably, they're at the top of our, our priority list, as it were, the first things on our minds. But in the normal run of Christian life, day-to-day life, and assuming the last day or two has been normalish for you, what has been up there, number one, as you come before the Lord in prayer? Uh, the passage we're looking at this morning, uh, I think, uh, should shape our answer to that question. Uh, we're going to get three things, uh, three Fs, forgiveness, feasting and fasting. When you go to Bible college, they teach you to make everything, you know, begin with the same letter, they teach you alliteration. So there you go, this morning, forgiveness, feasting uh, and fasting. Uh, we've already seen so far in this little section of Matthew uh, that began after the Sermon on the Mount, so chapters 8 through 9, that there's a pattern. Uh, we read three miracle stories and then after them, that there's some teaching about what it means to follow Christ. So back at the beginning of of chapter 8, Jesus healed a leper, uh, then he healed a centurion's servant, then he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then, verse 18, we we got a little, an insert, not a miracle, but a little bit of teaching about, well, about the toughness of following Christ, about the cost, the sacrifice. Uh, We've now had three more miracles. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the calming of the storm and the healing of the the two men with demons. This is the third, the healing of the paralytic. And so afterwards, again, we get some teaching on discipleship, what the Christian life should look like. And each time that the miracles, if you like, shape the the message. So so our understanding of what Jesus has just done helps us understand, well, the nature of the Christian life. So we really need to understand this healing of the paralytic if we're going to understand his teaching on feasting and fasting that follows. So let's dive in and look at forgiveness in verses 1 to 8. The forgiveness in verses 1 to 8. Now, this is a story that that is well known. Uh, But actually, Matthew's account of it is is much shorter than in the other Gospels. Uh, Jesus uh, has gone back to his own city, that's Capernaum. He has been in Gentile territory, one side of Lake Galilee. But they've, they've told him to go away. They beg him in the verse before, verse... 34 of chapter 8, they beg him to leave, so he does. goes away from the Gentiles and he goes back to his hometown, Capernaum. Now in the other Gospels, we get far more detail. We get told that he's teaching in a house, that the people are crowding in, that, that these friends want to bring their paralysed friend to him, but they can't, so they climb on the roof and dig through. But there's nothing here. Uh, none of that detail. Instead, we're just told that some people brought to Jesus a paralytic. Now children, a paralytic, do you know what a paralytic is? Does anyone know what a paralysed Man, what, what can a paralysed man not do? Does anyone know? Yeah, what can I do? He can't walk, that's right. Brilliant. So this man can't walk, that's why he's lying on the mat. And his friends have to carry him. Okay, a bit like on your picnic rug, they have to carry him to Jesus. Because he can't walk, he can't come to Jesus and ask to be healed. So his friends bring him along. And when Jesus sees their faith, he looks at them and he says, pick up your mat and walk, you're healed. But he doesn't, does he? Do you see? That's what we're expecting. He's healed the leper. He's healed the the servant. He's healed so many people that that Matthew can't even record them. Uh, He's stopped a storm. He's healed. He's driven out the demons. We're expecting another miracle story, but it doesn't happen. Instead, Jesus looks at the man who can't walk, who's paralysed, whose life would be 
well, almost a living hell if we could use that, that phrase. No hospitals in those days, no social care, no benefits, no, nobody particularly to look after him. And he looks at him and says, your son, sins are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. It's so cruel, isn't it? Uh, we're perhaps used to this story. We've, we've studied it before, and so we can rush on to the kind of right answer to things. But, but actually, if you were there at the time, just imagine. Okay, Jesus has been doing all these miracles, healing all these people from dreadful, life-debilitating diseases. Here's another one, and instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What do you think the man's thinking? John, what do you think was going through the man's head, or his friend's head, heads rather, as they, they bring him? What did the friends want? The friends wanted him to be healed, surely. And instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And that little sentence, verse 2, I think is, is the heart of understanding this miracle. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows that the man's main problem, that your main problem, your and I main problem in life, is nothing to do with our suffering, although our suffering may be great. The heart of our problem is our sin. There is nothing more dangerous to us than sin. And so Jesus deals with the man's most significant problem, the problem of sin, and he forgives it. But we'll never understand that the lessons about discipleship, we'll never understand really anything about Jesus' ministry. If we don't understand that the first and foremost, uh, he looks at each and every one of us and says, your greatest problem is internal. Uh, you read the newspapers and the, the commentators or, or watch the news uh, and the journalists are, are, are 101 different opinions for us as to what's wrong with the world. It's the politicians' fault. Uh, it's the electorate's fault for voting a certain way. Uh, the schools aren't doing their job. Uh, we, we look at our own lives and we think, my greatest need is, well, fill in the blank. Life would be okay if... My husband just stopped doing dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Life would be fine if my children would finally, everything would be okay if I could just get rid of this problem in my life. And Jesus looks down and says, look, your main problem is your sin. Your main problem is your sin. It's not that he's heartless to our suffering. We've seen that already through Matthew's gospel. He is always healing people. He's not heartless to the difficulties you're in at the moment. It's not that he doesn't care. It's just that in this story, in this instance, he's using it to show us that, that we must have our eyes set in, in the same place as he has, which is dealing with the root problem. Ultimately, the only reason we suffer is because of the sin in the world. If we never sinned, if Adam and Eve never rebelled, that then there would be no suffering in the world. Remember, suffering came in not at creation, not when God made the world, but with the fall, with the rebellion. No sin, therefore no suffering. Now, now that's not to say that if you are suffering in a particular way, okay, so this paralysed man, for example, it's not to say that he's paralysed because he committed some particular big sin. Sometimes there's a link, but by no means all the time. Most of our suffering, I would say, is simply because we live in a fallen world. Okay, it's not tied one-to-one. -one. You know, you drank too much, therefore you become paralysed. It's not that kind of relationship. But broadly, the link is there. So, so until Jesus deals with sin, he can never deal with suffering. And so he dealt with this man's greatest need. Now, children, this, this man is forgiven. 
And so where is he now? Where, where's this man now? It's 2,000 years later. Where's he going to be? Well, he's in heaven. So, so imagine you could talk to this man now. Okay? Imagine you had a phone to heaven and you could talk to this man. And you could talk to him about this day. And you said to him, look, you know, we, we read about your story in church this morning. And it was amazing. But by the end of the story, Jesus made, made you walk again. You know, what was that like? You, you'd never been able to walk. You know, your legs didn't work. And suddenly, well, Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And you could. That must have been amazing. What would the man say? And say, it was amazing. Certainly. What an experience to be on my feet again, to be able to go and join my friends, to be able to walk home to my family. It was an astounding day. But he would say, it's not the best thing that happened to me that day. The best thing that happened to me that day was having my sins forgiven. Because it's only when our sins are forgiven that eternal life opens up to us. Until our sins are forgiven, then ultimately we're heading to greater suffering. Jesus constantly warns throughout the Gospels, the whole Bible warns us, that actually if we don't have our sins forgiven, that then our destiny is hell, not heaven. Hell is a place of great suffering. Uh, eternal suffering, it never ends, you never get out. It is a place of right judgment on our sin. And so the most important thing, even above whatever suffering is in your life, is Jesus dealing with your sin, forgiving you this sin. So just very simply, as we begin a new term, this is a, is a good place to start. There's nothing new or radical here, here this morning. Uh, let me just ask you, ha- have you come to him for that forgiveness? Uh, have you come to Jesus for, for cleansing from your sin, for forgiveness from your sin? Uh, he's the only one who can grant it. There is no other way of dealing uh, with our sin. Uh, that's why the, the scribes, the, the religious teachers, are so offended Have you noticed that? Some of the scribes in verse 3 say, this man is blaspheming. Now, we often think of blaspheming as using God's name as a swear word or something like that, using God's God's name inappropriately. But but Jesus hasn't done that, and that's not what they're accusing him of. They're accusing Jesus of doing something that only God is allowed to do. Only God can forgive sins. Or perhaps more accurately, only God can give someone authority to say your sins are forgiven. Uh, In the Old Testament, and we actually saw this in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, so all the way through the first half of the Bible, children, it was possible for someone, some man, to say to you, your sins are forgiven. But the only people who could do that were the priests. You would bring your sacrifice. Remember these? We talked about the goats you'd bring, or the sheep, or the birds. You'd sacrifice them for your sin, and then the priest would say, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus isn't a priest. They're not in the the temple. He's in a house in Capernaum, and he is taking on himself the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Jesus is claiming uh, that God has has given access to heaven to him. He holds the gates, the key, sorry, to the gates of eternal life. Uh, He is, in other words, the Christ. Matthew's gospel began by by introducing us to Jesus Christ, the son of David. Uh, we'll be thinking about this more this afternoon, actually, so this, this ties in well. But, but Christ just means anointed. Uh, it means that, that, uh, that you've got oil poured on your head in the Old Testament. Three people, three jobs were anointed in the Old Testament. Kings were anointed, so when the king became king, had his crown, oil was poured on his head. Prophets, when, when they began their ministry, often had oil poured on their heads. And priests also, oil poured on their heads. I think throughout Matthew, 
uh, 8, Jesus, Matthew, sorry, has been weaving together this picture that, that Jesus has come to fulfill all those offices, that he is all those things. Uh, these three miracles uh, that we've looked at most recently, the calming of the storm, the, the healing of the demoniacs, and the healing of the paralytic, each, I think, just subtly say Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. So the calming of the storm, where, where Jesus' story is a bit like Jonah's. He's asleep in the boat, but unlike Jonah, uh, he can stand up and just say a word and the storm is stilled. His word is so powerful that creation listens. Okay, Jesus is the one who can truly speak God's word. He's the true prophet. Uh, he then goes and, and, and basically beats the evil spirits that stand against God and his people. He's stronger than, 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 the, than the demons. The only person in the Old Testament who could do that was David, the great king. He would play his music and the demons would be calmed. Jesus is the great king, come to conquer evil for his people. And here, the third miracle, the paralytic, Jesus is the great priest who is able to forgive your sins. Jesus is truly the Christ, the anointed one, the one sent to rescue us. Uh, The scribes don't believe that, so they're furious. And so Jesus, well, Jesus proves that he has got that authority. It's a strange question, isn't it? It's one that's puzzled people down the centuries. Uh, Verse 5, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Which do you think is easier? Is it easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? I think the the, the emphasis is on that word say. Which is easier to say? If you've been a Christian a while, you'll know that the bigger deal is dealing with sin. That's the more significant one. We talked about that already. But what's easier to say? Imagine, children, imagine there was a paralysed man. Imagine someone came in this morning in a wheelchair. What would be easier to say to them? Your sins are forgiven or get up, throw your wheelchair away and you can now walk. Well, it'd be easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see when sins are forgiven, can you? When you're forgiven, nothing happens. You don't change colour. You don't grow a little bit. Nothing happens to your body or fingers. You You don't see anything. But if someone's healed from their wheelchair, you'll see it. They'll be able to stand up. So so although forgiving sins is the the bigger deal, it's hard to say, in a sense, rise and walk. And so Jesus does that miracle. He tells a man to get up and walk to show that he can do the the bigger deal, if you like. Verse 6, so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself, has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. And the man does. And everyone's amazed. He alone can forgive sins. He shows it with his miracles. He is the true Christ, the true rescuer, the true priest who has come to deal with the biggest problem in your life. And so your life and my life will now follow that of the paralytics. If you put your trust in Christ, it will will follow the the pattern, if you like, of the paralysed man. He had his sins forgiven and then he was healed of his suffering. Now for him, they came, I don't know, two minutes apart. In the one conversation, Sin first, then suffering. For us, it's going to come, well, God willing, decades apart. If you're forgiven for your sins now, Jesus promises that one day you will be rescued from your suffering. Okay, when he returns to renew the earth, or frankly when you die, whichever comes first, then there will no longer be suffering. If you are suffering with some debilitating illness, if you are crushed in body, or in mind, or in soul, okay, if the 
the curse that, that still sits on the earth is really pushing you down, weighing you down, that, then there is the promise here that if your sin has been cut off, if your sin has been forgiven, then one day your suffering will too. In that sense, the paralytic is a model for us. Sin first, and then suffering. Uh, he, of course, even he would have died again before he had his suffering fully relieved. But Jesus promises, sin's forgiven, and then fully and finally suffering on the day that he returns. So, so this miracle is meant to, to orientate us right, like a compass points in the right direction. This miracle is meant to point us in the right direction. The number one problem in our lives is sin, and it is so easy to forget that. We, we start thinking that the, the main problem in my life is, well, someone else. The main problem in my life perhaps is someone else's sin even. Uh, the main problem in my life is my situation. At work, at school, at yeah, home in the family, whatever it might be. Always, always sin is the main problem. And therefore it is the main enemy. And that's why our prayers are such a giveaway. It's not that we need to um, ask for forgiveness of sin every day because if we don't and we die and we haven't asked for forgiveness for those sins, we won't be saved. No, once you're forgiven, you're forgiven once and for all. But, but a, a right Christian understanding continues to realise that, that sin is the ultimate enemy and that in order to maintain a, a healthy relationship with God, we, we keep confessing our sin. We ask for forgiveness of, of it and for the Holy Spirit to empower us to fight against it. Think of John, uh, the disciple John, who, who in his letters tells that the, the Christians, you know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. Now he's right to the Christians, they're already forgiven, and yet they need to keep on asking. Because sin remains the greatest enemy. How high up the list in your prayer life is forgiveness of sin? and cleansing from sin. The passage, I think, also gives us orientation as a church. Jesus' mission, ultimately, was to forgive sin, to deal with sin. Therefore, our mission is all to match that of, of Jesus Christ. There are so many good things a church can do. So many good things churches can do. But, but the, if you like, the, the, the forefront of it, the point of it, the, the, the sort of sharp end of mission... And the focus of it all needs to be telling the world about the forgiveness on offer in Christ. Now, it's not to say we don't do any other good things. You'll know that we give some of our offering we take just before or just after other communion uh, to help relieve some of the physical suffering, particularly of brothers and sisters around the world and here in Leeds. I think that's a good biblical thing to do. Paul, Paul tells the Galatians that they're to do good to all, particularly the household of faith, you know, the church family. It's right that we care for the, those in need, for those struggling, for those in poverty. But, but ultimately, our mission as a church is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth so that people won't just have relief from their short-term suffering of a year, five years, ten years, but eternal relief from suffering. A few years ago, there was a, a big kind of worldwide conference about trying to debate what is the mission of the church. They try to bring churches from, from every continent, from all sorts of different denominations together uh, and agree, okay, what, what is the mission? And as usual, they, they never can. But one pastor uh, reflected afterwards on the debate that went on between those who really wanted to put at the forefront relieving suffering, okay, so helping, helping those in poverty and sickness, and those who just wanted to preach the gospel. 
Okay, there were some who were saying we don't need to care about the, you know, the poor, the suffering, we just need to preach the gospel. This pastor's reflection afterwards was this. The mission of the church is to relieve suffering, especially eternal suffering. Isn't that helpful? The mission of the church is to relieve suffering, especially eternal suffering. How do you relieve eternal suffering? By preaching the gospel of Christ. It's not that you don't care about people on the way. It's just that ultimately our mission is to free people from hell and the judgment of God. And did you see the encouragement uh, in verse 2? What is it that prompts Jesus to heal this man? When Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus sees the faith of the men who brought, the friends who brought the paralytic to him, he forgives his sins and heals. It should be a huge encouragement to pray, to pray for those who are not currently forgiven and saved. Jesus saw their faith, not the man's faith, just their faith, and in response, essentially to their prayer, that their action was like a living prayer, Lord, help this man. They were bringing this man to Jesus. That's what we do in prayer, isn't it? In response to their acted out prayer, Jesus heals and forgives. That should be a huge encouragement to us. Jesus cares about the, the prayers of his people. Huge encouragement to parents. Okay, we, we, get, we you know, read all these parenting books or listen to all these talks or we have our strategy for parenting or whatever it might be. Ultimately, there's nothing we can do to, to, to magically engineer faith in our children's hearts. And so what our ultimate duty is, is to keep bringing them to Jesus in prayer. Lord, heal them, save them. And that's what we do for our friends, our, our family. Uh, Christ hears our prayers and answers. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. And it leads to two things, just much more briefly uh, as we close. Two, two ways of life, we might say. Uh, the first is feasting in verses 9 to 13. If we've been forgiven, it leads to feasting, 9 to 13. Uh, Jesus moves on. And he sees Matthew, probably the Matthew who wrote the gospel, though we can't be 100% sure. And he's a tax collector. Now, tax collector nowadays is a very respectable job. Uh, HMRC, I think, are just around the corner. Uh, but in those days, it really wasn't. Uh, tax collectors in those days were, were people, often Jewish people, who had betrayed their own people. The Romans had conquered. Okay, so the Romans were in charge. Uh, and the tax collectors were, were Jewish people who'd said to the Romans, look, you know, I will give you a £1,000 if you, you, you give me the job of collecting tax from my own people, collecting money from my own people. And the way they would do it is they, they would say, give a £1,000 to the Romans who are in charge, and then they would have the authority to go and collect taxes, and they'd go and collect £2,000, give a 1000 to the Romans, keep a 1000 for themselves. Uh, so they were utterly despised by their contemporaries. In fact, some people uh, even thought that you shouldn't uh, allow them in the synagogue, you shouldn't allow them to come and worship, and certainly the Pharisees thought that. Uh, the Pharisees were a group who wanted the Jews to become pure again, to live holy lives. And they didn't want to be corrupted by sinners. So, so when Jesus forgives or calls this tax collector Matthew to follow him, and then goes and feasts in his house, the Pharisees are furious. I look at the people in verse 10. They're tax collectors, sinners, who are lying down at the table with Jesus and his disciples, and the Pharisees say, what are you doing? Your, your teacher claims to be this great preacher. He just preached a sermon on the mount. He taught us to be a light to the world. 
a city on a hill. He told us that our hearts need to be pure and clean. And now he's eating with tax letters, with prostitutes, with the scum of the earth, say the Pharisees. What is he doing? Jesus answers with a little parable. It's not those, oh, sorry, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor. Children of physicians, just a doctor. Now, who, who goes to the doctor? Children, think about this one. Who goes to the doctor? Abs, who goes to the doctor? Sick people, nearly. It's not quite sick people, is it? So you might be sick and not go to the doctor. Because you might not... Well, probably people, is killing yeah? You might not realise you're sick. People who go to the doctor are people who know they're sick. Okay, if you don't know you're sick, you, you won't go. You might be ill and not realise it. There might be something wrong and you don't realise it. Uh, Jesus' story, little mini parable, is saying that the only people who will come to me are those who realise they have a problem. Not a problem with their legs or ears or eyes. He's not talking about physical healing here, but a problem with sin. Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, not those without sin, but those who are with sin. Now, ultimately, there's no one who's righteous. I think Jesus is being almost sarcastic here. Okay, there is no one who is completely righteous. Jesus ultimately has come to call everybody. But those who think they are without sin will never come to him. If Jesus becomes small to you, if Jesus seems irrelevant to you, perhaps you're not a Christian, you think, well, what's the point? The problem will be, ultimately, not your view of Jesus, but your view of yourself. You, you have not realised that you are a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness. Christian, if Jesus now is well, somebody you believe in, but he doesn't seem that real, doesn't seem that special, doesn't seem that necessary, have you lost sight of your sin? Have you stopped saying as a doctor who has come to deal with your greatest need, pardon and cleansing from sin? The great news in this little section, 9 through uh, 13, is that he's not just come to forgive you, but to feast with you. We see the character of God here. God comes to earth and he doesn't just forgive sinners and then sort of roll his eyes at them, tut, tut, and move on. He forgives them and feasts with them. He has a party with them. How encouraging is that? To, to bring your sin to Christ. When you fall short time and time again as a Christian and you think, this time I've blown it. Surely he won't forgive this sin. After all I've been taught and I'm still doing this. After all these years as a Christian and still I've done even that. We, we're tempted to think, well, Jesus must be so disappointed. But look, he feasts with sinners. That's who he's come to feast with. And so part of what it means to be forgiven is to celebrate, to rejoice. As we'll think about more later when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is a little mini feast in advance of the great feast in heaven. Heaven is pictured, children, as a great feast where sinners gather. If you're a sinner, you are welcome with the Lord and feasting and rejoicing is the right response but it's also a time for fasting uh, in verses 14 through uh, 17 we, we get some disciples of John the Baptist so these aren't Pharisees they're not kind of hardcore baddies as it were they, these are these are people who are confused they come to Jesus and say look we fast children fasting means going without food so you can pray so instead of having lunch you spend that time praying. Instead of having breakfast, you spend that time praying. And the disciples of John the Baptist say, look, that's what we do sometimes. And that's what the Pharisees do sometimes. But, but your disciples don't seem to. They're always just eating. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus is eating all the time. Feasting. 
And, and, and the disciples are confused. We, we thought we were meant to be fasting. The reason they thought they were meant to be fasting was that fasting was a way of spending intensive time in prayer, asking God to send the great rescuer, send the Messiah, send the Christ. The Pharisees would fast every Monday and Thursday. The Old Testament didn't say they had to. The Old Testament only says you need to fast on the Day of Atonement, one day a year. But the Pharisees had brought in all these other fasts as well. Uh, We ought to be praying that God would send the rescuer, pouring ourselves out in prayer so that he would come and redeem us. And Jesus says, you've just not understood who I am. There's a reason my disciples don't fast. There's a reason my particular close friends don't fast. And that is because... Well, it's because I'm here. He uses the illustration of a wedding. Children, some of you have been to a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding? Well, what happens after the wedding? Okay, after you, you've had the, the service and maybe a drink afterwards, what does everyone go and do? Yeah. Go and feast, exactly. That's right. You're going to have a feast, uh, a great meal to celebrate. You don't fast at a wedding when the bridegroom, when the groom and bride are there. You don't fast. You've never turned up to a wedding and the bride and groom have stood up and said, we thought it'd be better to spend this time in prayer. So, you know, instead of serving food, we're just going to sit and mourn and pray. No, it never happens. Jesus is saying he is a bit like the groom at a wedding. In fact, that's an Old Testament picture of God. We won't look at those verses now. But if we looked at books like Isaiah and Hosea, we would see that God often portrayed himself as a groom come to marry his people. Jesus is saying, I am here. So the time for feasting is now because I'm with you. I'm here forgiving sin, gathering people together. The days will come. This is significant for us. Verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom, when I, Jesus, I'm taken away from you. And then they will fast. But when he's there, physically with them, it's time for rejoicing. So he's saying to John the Baptist's disciples, you don't understand that I am the one that you've been praying for. I'm the purpose, if you like, of all these fasts and prayers. And so for us now, well, for us now, is Jesus with us or is he not with us? But he is with us and he isn't with us, isn't he? But we're in a new stage. He is with us. He's come. He's forgiven us. He dwells in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But but he also isn't fully with us. We know that one day he will return and we we will see him. We will physically be in his presence. And that's why I think for now, for the church now, we're in a time of both feasting and fasting. We we feast, we celebrate that our sins have been forgiven. We should be full of joy because of what Christ done for us. But, But it's still a time for fasting. When I go, then they will fast. It's still a time of intense prayer if you like and mourning for sin because well because the the freedom from suffering hasn't arrived yet freedom from sin has forgiveness of sin has but but that fall seeing christ face to face has not yet arrived we still suffer and so it's right and i think the rest of the new testament points this out too it's right that sometimes there's no set rules but sometimes we 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 put aside food or we put aside tv for a day or whatever it might be and use that time to pray to long for christ's presence Uh, Long that he would purify us more from our sin. Long that he would return and end all suffering. The Christian life, once we've been forgiven, is is both feasting and fasting. It's both joy at what we've received, but also longing, hunger for for the more that is to come. And and if you miss either one, I think you've missed something of the gospel. If there's no feasting, rejoicing in your life, it might be that you've you've not realised how fully forgiven you are. There's nothing more to do. It's done and dusted. Once you realise that, there should be real joy in your Christian life. But if there's no fasting, no mourning, 
then perhaps you've not quite realised how much more there is for you in the future. What a mess sin is still making of your life. That's why the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come, he has died, he's provided forgiveness, and he will one day provide freedom entirely from suffering. Uh, your prayers give away your deepest desires. Uh, Matthew 9 speaks to us and calls us to, to pray and pray and pray that God would continue to cleanse us, that God would continue to kill off sin in our life, and that God would send the bridegroom back uh, to bring us joy eternal. Let's pray just that. Our Father God, we praise you that there is forgiveness of sin, that there is a way uh, to enter the courts of heaven, to dwell in your house forevermore. There is a way to escape uh, the fires of suffering, uh, that in Christ is full forgiveness. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes uh, to see uh, the completeness of his salvation. Might we rejoice as we think upon what he's done for us. But Lord, give us, we pray, a yearning for greater holiness and for greater purity. Give us, above all, we pray, a yearning, a longing, a desire to see Christ return. And might we know that a day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Might we know that although to live is Christ, to die is gain, that it is better by far to be in his presence uh, than to dwell uh, on this earth under the curse. Father, make us, we pray, people who long and rejoice for Christ. In his name we ask. Amen.